we are picking up in uh, the fifth verse of the second chapter. And so I've taught this twice this morning, and I have not been happy with either of the previous teachings because I just, as I'm looking at it, I'm feeling like it's kind of overwhelming. There's just so much here in these verses. But um, what, what I'm trying to avoid doing is getting sidetracked off into different little subjects that you might get sidetracked off into uh, just by some of the individual verses. And what, what I'm trying to do is keep the flow of thought. So we're following the arguments as they are presented. And it's because I'm, I'm trying to approach it that way that we're taking... Um, more verses uh, than we might normally take. So today we're going to pick up in verse 5 and we're going to go to the end of the chapter, uh, verse 18. There are all kinds of verses that we could just camp on and talk about, but if, if we do that, then we kind of, you know, we kind of lose the continuity of what the author is uh, really getting at. So, um, so that's why... We're going to be taking uh, a pretty good chunk of uh, scripture here today. So now, the, let me just give you the quick reminder, quick background just to catch us up. Because when we pick up in verse 5, we're picking up in the middle of a, um, a, a thought. The, the author is, we stopped and uh, he carried on. So we're, we're coming back into this, this thought process. We're coming back into this argument, really, where he's building his case uh, to remind these Jewish believers who are being tempted uh, to go back to Judaism because of the comfort, because of the security. Uh, they're, they're, they're living through challenging times as believers in the Messiah right now. So they're under this temptation to go, to go back. So he's arguing, showing them that they don't want to do that. There's nothing back there for them. God is, uh, although that, that was a system that God established, he's moved, God himself has moved on from it, and God has brought about this new covenant. And so in, in, in proving this point, what he's doing is he's showing the superiority of the new and especially of Christ. He's showing the superiority of him over everything that's preceded. And he started with the angels, because as we uh, previously saw uh, these Jews had in their mind that the angels might somehow be superior. And the angels gave the law. And so they were connecting all of that. And, and again, they were being tempted to go back to the former system. So he argues against that. He, he explains to them that, uh, no, your, your own scriptures, we looked at these, that your own scriptures declare the supremacy of the Son over the angels. He, by inheritance, has a more excellent name than they do. Then he goes on to show how the scriptures uh, confirm that. Now it seems when we come to the fifth verse, it seems that they're still kind of struggling with this whole thing of the humanity of Jesus. Um, it appears to us that human beings are inferior to angels. So they're, they're, they're still seemingly struggling with this. And so he's going to 
show here in his argument as he carries on with it, he's going to show that the reality is human beings are superior to angels, even though presently it doesn't seem to be the case. But through Jesus, that's where we see the ultimate superiority. Now, here's a, um, a mind-boggling thing to me. The passages that we're, we're going to read here, they teach that man... And remember, man is made in the image of God, and I'm including woman in that, of course, uh, that man is God's, man is the apex of God's creation, even above the angelic beings. And so, let me read verses 5 through 18. For he, speaking of God, has not put the world to come, the future world. He's not put the future world in, uh, of which we speak in subjection to angels. Angels will not rule the future world, he says. Uh, and then he goes back to the Old Testament, as he often does, and he quotes from the eighth Psalm. But one in a, in a certain place, uh, one testified in a certain place saying, what is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you take care of him. You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. You have set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. So this is the, uh, again, he's going back to the Old Testament scriptures, which they, of course, would put every bit of confidence in. And he's showing how even in the Old Testament, it was stated that angels are not going to ultimately rule, but man is going to rule. But he says this, uh, for in that he put all things in subjection under man, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him, but this is what we see. We see Jesus, who was made for a little while lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. So he says, we, we don't see the fulfillment of what God declared he was going to do, but what do we see now? We see Jesus. So Jesus is the representative, and he's the one through whom man is going to attain to this, this ultimate uh, position that God intended for man in the first place. One of the most fascinating things about this is that we're being told here that God's intention is that man rule the world. Now, the reason that's fascinating to me is because this is the very thing men have been trying to do from the beginning, but to no avail. This, this is you know, even, even today, uh, certain political ideas and so forth, the objective is to, to, for men to rule the world, for us to bring everything into uh, subjection to uh, some, you know, political system, some philosophical system, and, and that we would control everything. But the problem, historically, has always been that the attempts are attempts to do it apart from God. They're attempts to do it in rebellion to God. But the irony in the whole thing is the very thing man is striving for is the very thing that God intends to do, but 
if, if man would just allow God to do what he wanted to do, uh, he would see accomplished what he really longs to see accomplished. But the irony is that we, we don't do it. Humanity doesn't do it. This is the story of human history. C.S. Lewis put it like this. Human history is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. And it's so true, isn't it? I mean, you think of the things that we long for as human beings, the things that we as human beings are, are striving for, things that we're, we're hoping to attain with the idea that if, if I could just have these things or experience this, this is going to bring me happiness. This is going to bring me fulfillment. Think about it. What do we long for? We, we long for love. Uh, we long for peace. We long for happiness. We long for meaning. We long for purpose. These are the things that we long for. These are the very things that God gives to us when we come to him. The problem is we're always looking for these things in the wrong places. We never come to the right place. So this is, this, this is the, to me, this is the great irony. God's plan for man is really mind-blowing because he plans to give man the rule of the whole universe, and that's going to happen through Jesus. And so verse 9, we see Jesus, who was made temporarily, lower than the angels. Jesus is the man who will rule, but he tells us here, before Jesus ruled as man, he suffered as man, and he suffered for man. You know, the problem with all political systems is people. People are always the problem. You know, in theory, this ought to work. <clears throat> You know, people, some, some would say socialism is the ultimate uh, form of human government. And, you know, the idea is that everybody's equal. We all get along. We all share together and, and all of that sort of thing. You know, theoretically, it sounds like a good idea. But you know what? It doesn't work. It's never worked. It hasn't worked in the past. It's not working today. And it's never going to work in the future. Why? Because there are people involved in it. And people, <laughs> the problem with people is we're sinners. And so we can see the idea. We can uh, think that, you know, it's attainable. But the fact of the matter is it's not attainable. We can never attain to it. It's because of the sin issue. Jesus is the answer to all of these problems because he doesn't have that issue. He doesn't have a sin issue. You see, Jesus can rule. Because there's no sin. There's no, he's not driven by any kind of personal ambition or motive or selfish uh, kind of an agenda whatsoever. It, he, he serves completely out of absolute purity and love for others. So we see Jesus. He is the one who will rule. But... Before ruling, he says that he, was, he suffered. He suffered as man and for man. And now he refers to him here. Uh, let me just finish reading verses 10 through 18. Uh, for it was fitting for him for whom are all things 
and by whom are all things, that's God, <clears throat> in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore in all things he had to be made like his brethren." that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people, for in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are being tempted. So we see Jesus, who for a short while was made lower than the angels. He is crowned with glory and honor after suffering and death. Now, the son, or as he refers to him here, the captain of our salvation, it says that um, it was fitting for the father to make the captain of our salvation perfect through suffering. Now, as we go further, we're going to see all of this is related to the, the bigger picture of what he's wanting to talk about here. And let me, let me just say this before we go there. Um, the message, I've, I've entitled the message, Why God Took on Flesh and Blood. Why God Took on Flesh and Blood, because that's really the, the question that's being addressed here, or it's, it's the question that's being answered. This is obviously a question in the mind of the readers. They're still baffled by this whole thing of the incarnation. How, how is it that God, why would God do this? And so, the author is explaining this. That's what he's uh, doing here. And so he says, it was fitting for God um, in bringing many sons to glory, that would be all of us who believe in Jesus, in bringing us to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now, the word captain here, the, the word means the source, or um, you, could, you could translate the word the the leader, or even the, the pioneer, somebody who paves the way for others. So Jesus is the one. He paves the way for us. He, what, he paves the way to what? He paves the way to glory. God's bringing many sons to glory. Jesus is the first one to, to go through that, that process. But he brings, it, brings him through it, it says, through suffering. And it says that through this, he is perfected. Now, this is perplexing to some people. How, how is it that it says that Jesus would be perfected? How does Jesus need to be perfected? That's a good question. And what we need to understand is the perfecting is not referring to any moral perfecting. Jesus was perfect. He didn't need to go through any kind of a process to become more perfect in a moral sense. He was sinless. And so he had uh, no need for that kind of perfecting. The perfecting here refers to a, what you might call a vocational perfecting through suffering. 
It's a vocational. He's going through this suffering um, as preparation for his, for his um, position in the future. What is his position going to be in the future? It's going to be to mediate between God and people. That's what he does today. There's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. But he goes through the human experience, including suffering, so that he can mediate effectively so that he can sympathize with those that he's mediating for. So the perfecting is, like I said, it's more of a vocational uh, perfecting. It's like the priest in the Old Testament, they had to be qualified to serve in their office as priest. And so Jesus, this is qualifying him to serve as the, the priest and the king. The priest is the mediator. And so now he's serving not from, uh, he's mediating not from the position of simply having information about our suffering, like he can see it from a distance, but he's, he's mediating from a position of having lived it. That makes, a, that makes a big difference. You know, if I come to somebody, um, if I'm suffering and I come for consolation or help or counsel or advice to somebody who's never suffered a day in their life, they see my suffering and they might even be sympathetic and they might, might wanna say a good thing or two to help me out, but they, they, it's difficult. They've never been there. They don't really know what to do. You never have that problem with Jesus. You see, Jesus, he doesn't just know about suffering. He doesn't just know that you have suffered he suffered also. So when you come to Jesus, when we come to him with our problems, whatever it might be, we're coming to a person who knows exactly what we're dealing with because he was there. That's the amazing thing that the incarnation did, and that's what the author is wanting them to see, that this the whole thing of the, of the incarnation, the whole thing of the, uh, the Son of God becoming a human being for this season was not uh, a sign of, of weakness. It was a sign of goodness on God's part. It was, a, it was a sign of grace on God's part. He did it for our benefit. And so he goes on and he says, for both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name uh, to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will sing praise to you again. I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I in the children whom God has given me. So he goes back as his, his, uh, his method here. He quotes again from the Old Testament, showing that the Old Testament had predicted that the Messiah, who is God, would become one with us to the point that he would refer to us as his brothers, as his brothers and sisters. He would take on that uh, same identity with us. And notice he says that he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified. Now, sanctification, that's a word that describes the process that we go through in life of becoming like Jesus, to put it simply. 
the process that we go through in life. All of life, once you come to faith in Christ, you're justified and you enter into this process of sanctification that will last the rest of your life. And during the sanctification process, God is working out the old things and he's working in the new. He's working to uh, obliterate the old man and to bring forth the new man created in the image of Christ. That, that's what he's doing. But while he's walking us through this long process, he's the sanctifier. We are the sanctified. But again, he's doing it from the standpoint of having been among us. So you see, when you, when you think about this thing of sanctification, this, to me anyway, this, this makes it so much more beautiful in as much as the one who's doing the sanctifying, he's gone through these things himself. So he knows what, what the best possible thing for us is that's going to accomplish the sanctification without destroying us in the process. You know, if God were to just come along and say, I need to make you holy right this second, that could be extremely painful. That could be, that'd rip you to shreds, you know, possibly. Because I mean, God's going to rip all the sin out of your life. That's what sanctification is. God's getting the sin out of our life. Now, like I said, if he just came and did that just instantaneously, that this would be very painful for all of us. But he does that but he does it from the standpoint of one who knows where we have been. He does it from the standpoint of one who has walked in our shoes. So you see, the, the author is showing them that far from uh, this, far from the incarnation being something that uh, lessens the glory of Jesus, if you will, no, the incarnation magnifies the glory of Jesus. He condescended to this place because of his love for us. Now, in verses 14 through 18, and these are the ones that I want to focus on here as we kind of get into the, the primary uh, thing that, that I want to focus on and the primary thing that the author is, is wanting to drive home is uh, really an, an answer to the question why God took on flesh and blood. Have you ever asked that question yourself? Have you ever struggled with the whole concept of, of the deity of Christ, God becoming a man? Many people have struggled with that. The Jews, of course, struggled with it back in the, the days of Jesus. Uh, they still struggle with it today. I was just speaking to Jewish friends in Israel recently, and some of them were telling me, you know, still one of the big stumbling blocks for the Jew is how could God become a man? Just, just, why would he do something like that? God's so great. And if you talk to a Muslim about the whole idea of the incarnation, in their mind, no, it's impossible. God is too great. He could never become a man. So why did God take on flesh and blood? He's, he's go going to... Uh, answer the question here. But maybe you've wondered yourself. When I was a, a relatively young Christian, and I remember um, going through a season where I was under uh, intense spiritual attack, and it, it really centered on this whole issue of the person of Christ and the deity of Christ. 
And I remember the enemy would just relentlessly pound my mind with this kind of uh, thing like, you know, well, come on, you know, God really becoming a man. I mean, how could that be? And why would that? And, And I'll never forget opening my Bible to Hebrews 2.14 and reading this passage here and suddenly realizing this is why. This is the answer. Hebrews 2.14 gives us the answer to that question, why God took on flesh and blood. Inasmuch as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetimes subject to bondage. That's why God took upon himself flesh and blood. He took upon himself flesh and blood so that he could die. God can't die. God's eternal. But there has to be a death in order for sin and the devil to be overthrown. So how is this going to happen? Men can't die for this because men are guilty sinners. Angels can't die for this because angels are angels. They're not, they're not related in that sense. So there has to be someone who has this connection with both God and man in order to do it. And man, remember, is created in the image of God. You know, angels are not created in the image of God. There's nowhere in the Bible that says angels are created in the image of God says men are created in the image of God. We only are created in God's image. So there's this, there's this already existing link between God and man that is uh, unique. And so now in order for sin and the devil to be dealt with, God has to die. He can't die. What does he do? He partakes of flesh and blood in order that he might die. And that through dying, he would destroy the one who had the power of death, that is the devil. I was talking to somebody after last service and just in the conversation, um, he used this term and it was good. And I grabbed onto it and I said, yeah, that's the exact right term. He mentioned the fact that in doing things the way God did them, in sending Jesus to beat the devil by dying, he beat him at his own game. Because this was how the devil, uh, this was his thing, death. Now, when it says that the devil had the power of death, we have to understand that the devil did not possess control over death inherently. So this wasn't always the case. This became the case because of his seduction of mankind into rebellion against God. So when man rebelled against God, and sin entered in, and man really in rebellion against God yielded himself to Satan, the the great rebel. This is how Satan gained the power of death. So death is held by the devil in a secondary and not in an ultimate sense. But the reason the devil has power over death is because of sin. So if sin can be dealt with, then that power can be broken. The Puritan writer, John Owens, he put it this way. He said, all Satan's power over death was founded on sin. The obligation of the sinner to death gave Satan his power. 
the sinner is obligated to die. That's the way it is. By one man's sin entered into the world and death through sin. And so, as he said, the obligation of the sinner to death gave Satan his power. If this obligation was removed, Satan's power would also be taken away. And that's exactly what happened. Jesus destroyed the power of the devil over his control over men through death by dying, but he dies sinlessly. So the devil has no hold on him. So he breaks the power of the devil. It, I think this is really uh, beautifully illustrated by C.S. Lewis in his uh, Chronicles of Narnia. In the book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Anybody read that book? Or maybe you saw the movie. Um, there, there's a part there where Lewis really captures this, this whole idea here. And just for those of you who don't know, or maybe those of you who need your memory refreshed, you have these different characters in the, in the series. You have Aslan. Aslan is the king. He's the ruler of Narnia. He's, the, he's Jesus. Uh, Lewis was writing all of this as a, a spiritual allegory. So Aslan is Jesus. You've got the white witch, who's obviously the devil. And uh, there's a certain point, maybe you remember, where uh, Aslan is actually slain by the white witch. And he's slain because he gives up his, uh, he, he puts himself in the place of Edmund, who had uh, sinned and created all the problems. And uh, so anyway, Aslan, he allows the white witch to slay him, and then he resurrects. And he's slain on, on what's called the stone table. And at his resurrection, the stone table is broken. So let me pick up in the, the actual story itself. Aslan is speaking. He says, the witch knew the deep magic. There is a magic deeper still, which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time, but if she had looked a little further back into the stillness and the darkness before time dawned, she would have read there a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backward. That is such a beautiful picture of everything that we're talking about here. That's exactly it. Jesus is the innocent victim, the willing innocent victim who has committed no sin. He committed no treachery. And so when he died, that the table represents the law. The law is what we violate, and it's our violations of the law that put us under the death sentence. And those violations of the law are called sins. So it's sin. So what happened when Jesus died, just like with Aslan here, because he had committed no treachery, the table, the law, is then no longer effective. It's nullified. The table is cracked, and what happens, he puts it this way, death itself would start to work backwards. Jesus conquered death. He destroyed death. He beat the devil at his own game. 
He came and he died. And when he died, the devil thought, I won. I got him, just like everyone else. But he didn't have him because he couldn't hold him. Death, death could not hold Jesus. Jesus rose again, and in doing so, he conquered the devil. He destroyed the one who had the power of death. And secondly, he released those who through fear of death lived their entire life subject to bondage. This is the great fear of all humanity, always has been. It's the fear of death. It's like Woody Allen said many years ago, I'm not afraid to die. I just don't want to be there when it happens. <laughs> but the reality is we're, we're all afraid to die. No, nobody wants to die. And now I, I'm saying that to a group of people who believe in Jesus. So with us, there, there should be something different about that. But let's just take Jesus out of the equation for a moment and put ourselves out there just in the, um, the masses of humanity. Everybody's afraid to die. A lot of people will never admit it, but that's the reality. They don't want to think about it. They don't want to hear about it. This is the great dread. This is the great fear that man lives with. One writer put it this way. He said, death cast a shadow over the entirety of life, hovering like a ghost over every dimension of existence. That is what death is like. It just hovers over every dimension of existence. He went on to say, he said, death means that human beings do not reign, but are ruled over by a foreign power, for they fear their eventual demise that comes inexorably upon them. In every moment of happiness, death is our dark shadow, reminding us that our joy is short-lived. It's so true. It's so true about life. There's always that, that lingering shadow. And of course, we, we all try to keep that as far back uh, in our minds as we can. We don't, we don't like that to come to the surface, do we? We want to keep that idea as far away. But inevitably, we're touched by it. Inevitably, we hear about it. And so we hear to last yesterday about the vice president's son dying. And there, there it is again. Here's, here's a family that's touched by it again. And of course, there's millions of families all over the world today touched by death. It's inescapable. And as a result of that, man lives in the dread of death, lives in the fear of death. But Jesus came, and because of what he did, he releases those who have lived their lives in bondage to the fear of death. So for those who know Jesus, for those who believe in him, we know that Jesus conquered death. And so the Bible now refers to it as the shadow of death. It's just a shadow. The Bible refers to it as sleeping. You know, what's so bad about sleeping? Sleeping's actually really a good thing, isn't it? I love to fall asleep. <laughs> There's a point. You ever think about sleep? There's two things I marvel at. I marvel at water and sleep. I just think, you know, water is this amazing thing. You can do a thousand different things with it and you can drink it and it satisfies you. It's crazy. You could wash anything with it. You know, all these things you can do with water. But then sleep. Man, sleep is such, isn't it? Think about sleep. You go to sleep at night. You don't know what's going on. There you are. You're just, you're gone. You're out. 
and, and everything keeps going. Everything keeps working. Your heart keeps beating. Your, all your vitals keep functioning. You know, all of that. And then, then you wake up and you're refreshed. I think, wow, God, this is just one of those amazing things you created. Well, the Bible says for the believer, that's what death is like. Death is like sleep. But for the believer, death is like going to sleep at the end of a really bad day and waking up to a perfect day. That's the, that's the beautiful thing that happens there. So Jesus is the one who sets us free from this. He's the one who sets people free. Now, it doesn't mean that there's not uh, grief on the part of people who even believe in Jesus, whose loved ones pass on before them. There's the grief is, I, I'm going to miss this person. But the, the reality that comes into comfort is that we're going to be together again. And we're never going to be separated again. So this is what Jesus did. This is why God took on flesh and blood. He took on flesh and blood so he could destroy death. He could destroy the devil who had the power of death. He could liberate men from bondage to the fear of death. But that's not the only thing. He also took on that flesh and blood as we've already kind of talked about. But let's just go into a little more detail and finalize his point here. He also did it so that he might give aid to us. Not to angels, he says in verse 16. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren. Why? That he might be a merciful and a faithful high priest. He became a man also, to have the human experience so that when he meets us where we're at, he really meets us where we're at, having been there himself. Jesus wasn't partially human. He wasn't mainly human. Jesus was fully human. And so right in these first two chapters, you have these two great incomprehensible doctrines. You have the doctrine that Jesus is God the Son, let me make that clear. He's God the Son. Somebody asked me earlier, well, if Jesus is God, then how is it, you know, when, how does he pray to his Father in heaven? Well, this is where the doctrine of the Trinity is vital. Jesus is not God the Father. He's God the Son. But they're equal, but they're distinct. So Jesus, he is God fully, but he's also fully human. Jesus is fully human. The only element that distinguishes us from Jesus in the human sense is sin. Jesus is fully human with the exception of sin. And sin isn't natural to human beings because the first human beings were created without sin. Sin came afterwards. So Jesus is like Adam and Eve were before they sinned. So he's a fully human person, and yet he's without sin. Again, this uh, same writer I quoted earlier, he said, Jesus' solidarity with human beings was not superficial, but profound and genuine. Like us, he shares flesh and blood, and he identifies with us and takes on the same nature, even yielding up his life in death. 
He was beset with weaknesses and mortality that characterizes human existence. He went through the full human experience. He really became a human being. Why? So he could be a merciful and a faithful high priest in the things that pertain to God. Why high priest? What is he talking about here? The picture is the mediator. The high priest was the one to mediate. He was the one to offer the sacrifice to God. He was the one to represent the people to God. That's what Jesus does. But he does it as a merciful and a faithful high priest. When he's mediating for us, he's mediating from our position. You see, that's the thing. He fully identifies with us. You know, people today often in their ranting against God, you hear this a lot from the atheist, um, if there's a God, then how would he allow for suffering and how could he allow for these kinds of horrific atrocities to happen and all of the misery that people have suffered? And, they, you know, they go on and on about that. And, um, you know, we don't know exactly why God allows some of those things, but this is what we know and we can never forget and we need to remind them of. God didn't exempt himself from any of it. The God who allowed it allowed it to happen to himself. He created the world, yes, knowing that it was going to be filled with sin and misery and suffering, but he didn't exempt himself from it. He actually came into it. And he suffered like no one ever suffered because we suffer for our own sins. Occasionally we suffer as a result of the sins of somebody else and you know they, they do something to us that harms us or whatever. Uh, Jesus suffered for everyone's sin. He bore the sin of the entire, the entire human family from start to finish. So you want to talk about suffering. Let's talk about Jesus. Nobody knows suffering like Jesus knows suffering. Nobody could ever know in any way the kind of suffering that Jesus endured. It wouldn't be possible. It was because of the union between humanity and divinity that he was able to suffer to that extent. But because he suffered, he is a merciful and a faithful high priest and that he, having suffered, is able to aid those who are tempted or tested. And here's the great news that we need to remember. When you come to Jesus with your troubles, whatever they might be, you're coming to someone who knows by experience what trouble is. You're coming to that person who has the ability to fully sympathize with all of our weaknesses because he himself was beset with these very things. So this is, this is intended to bring us a, a tremendous amount of comfort to know that, that, that God gets it. He understands it. Sometimes you will be greatly disappointed because you, you find that in your suffering, no one understands. 
no one can relate. You, you talk to people and you, you find, you know, you walk away and you say, you know, I know they meant well, but they just, they just don't get it. They don't get it. They can't get it. And they probably can't. But Jesus can. He gets it. And there's nothing that you can bring to him that he doesn't get. There's nothing that you can bring to him that he would say, no, I, I'm sorry, I, I can't relate to that. There's no suffering that you could go through that he cannot identify with you right where you're at in that. And so he is a merciful high priest. When we come to him, he's a merciful high priest. Remember, the priest did two things. He offered sacrifice for sin and he mediated. So when we come to him with our sin, guess what? He can forgive it. He makes propitiation for the sin. He appeases the, the wrath of God against that sin. Whatever sin it might be, doesn't matter what sin it is. When you come to him with that sin, he's a merciful high priest. He says, yes, the sacrifice is sufficient for that sin. Whatever it is, however many times it's been, it's a sufficient sacrifice. But then there's also not only the, the sacrifice for sin that's there, but there's also the, the grace and the mercy and the compassion to, to move us forward beyond our sin and into the blessing that God has for us. And even if it's not a sin issue that we come to him with, but we come to him with a suffering issue, we come to one who has suffered, one who sympathizes with us, and one who promises to give us grace and strength to make our way through the season of suffering. So in closing, you see, the author wants his readers to know how wonderful the Savior is. You don't want to go back to that old system. None of this is there. Back into that old system, that's the law. There's guilt, condemnation. There's death. But no, under the, under the new covenant, there's life because Christ conquered death. And back under the Old Testament system, there's, there's no high priest there that can help you. The high priest is as bad off as you are. He can't do anything. But now we have a, this great high priest. And so for us today and for any who are suffering, suffering because of sin, we can come to him and he forgives our sin. We're suffering because of just the challenges and difficulties and tragedies of life. He's there to meet us. He gives aid to the seed of Abraham. One last thing. Why does he say the seed of Abraham here? How did Abraham get in the picture? He says the seed of Abraham instead of, you would think at this point he might talk more about Adam because he's kind of had us back there in the beginning with the beginning of history. But he says Abraham for a specific reason. And it's because it's through Abraham that Christ came. And as we put our faith in Christ, we become the seed of Abraham. So these promises are two those who are uh, believers in Christ. All of these things are for those who, like Abraham, believed. And when we believe like Abraham did, we become, uh, the Bible identifies us as his seed. So these promises are for God's people. These great truths are for God's people. 
And if you're not of the seed of Abraham today, in other words, if you haven't put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ personally, then these things are true, but they, they're, they're not accessible to you. They're truths that are out there, but you're, you're cut off from them. The way to enter into these truths and to experience them for yourself, which is the important thing, is that you also likewise put your faith in Christ. You become part of the seed of Abraham, and then you become among those who God aids in these troubles and difficulties and the realities of life. So Lord, help any today who have yet to trust Christ to do that today, this moment to do that. And Lord, thank you that we have such a great and a wonderful Savior. Jesus, thank you that you you did, you condescended, Lord, to a place that we really can't even get our heads around this. Lord, it's so deep what you did, what you accomplished by becoming a human being. And Lord, would you help us by your spirit to just lay hold of these things in a fresh way. And Lord, that these things would motivate us, that they would move us to worship, that they would move us to praise, that they would move us to service, they would move us to obedience, they would move us to continually follow you with all diligence. So help, Lord, work, we pray. And, and if you're here today and you've never personally received Christ, you can do that right now. This is your moment. Just open your heart to him. Just ask him. Just say, Jesus, come into my life. Just ask him to forgive your sins. Tell him that you want him to save you. It's in your own words. And he will do that. And all these things will become yours personally. That's what God intends. So, Lord, work, we pray. Amen.